Mark chapter 13, from verse 28, the 28th verse of Mark 13. I am reading from the Revised Standard Version. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, ye know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, what? For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. We have spent most of our time last week on this matter of the parable or lesson of the fig tree. Learn from the fig tree, learn its lesson, or the revised version, learn its parable. And uh, the question we asked ourselves was whether this was merely and only uh, an illustration of spring pointing to summer. Many would have us believe that that's all it is. It's just an illustration of spring pointing to summer. And uh, we will not go over that. We explained that view quite fully and the justification for it. And then there is this other thought that there is perhaps here a reference to the Jewish people. And I think we came to the conclusion last week, as we looked at it all in Scripture, that the lesson of the fig tree is firstly, that when we see these things coming to pass, then as surely as summer follows spring, so the coming of the Lord is at the gates. That was the first thing. There is a glorious and unshakable certainty about the coming of the Lord. And once we begin to see the sequence of events described in these verses taking place before our eyes, we know that he is coming. It's as certain as that. 
We cannot, as we shall see this evening, fix the date or the hour, but we know that he's coming. Secondly, we have seen that the lesson of the fig tree has a much deeper and fuller significance than merely the fact that it is a tree bursting into leaf. That speaks of summer coming. But we have seen that it's a certain kind of tree to which our attention is drawn, the fig tree. And that we have here a very gracious intimation that the dispersed and despised and judged Jewish people, something's going to happen to them and amongst them at the, toward the close of the age, which will be in itself another unmistakably clear indication that the coming of the Lord is very near. Then last week we spent most of our time looking at this deeper significance of uh, the fig tree. It's quite clear about summer following spring that when we see the trees all bursting into leaf, we know, we say, summer's coming. Uh, spring has started. We know that summer's on the way. And we're very glad for it. Um, but we did spend quite a while last week upon this matter of the fig tree as the, as the symbol, if you like, of the Jewish people on this deeper level. And we saw three things that the fig tree represents or illustrates on this deeper level. First of all, the continuity of the Jewish people. Secondly, the reconstitution of the Jewish nation. And thirdly, the promise of fruit at the last. Well, we can't go over that again this evening, except just to say this, very, very briefly summing it all up a whole evening study. The continuity of the Jewish people, in spite of the fact that the Lord had earlier that morning, when his attention had been drawn to the withered fig tree, withered from its, from its roots, the fig tree he had cursed, he had judged because there was no fruit on it. In spite of the fact that earlier that morning his attention had been drawn to that very tree, by these same disciples, he now speaks of a fig tree bursting into leaf. In other words, although the Jewish nation, although the Jewish people had been dispersed to the ends of the earth and into every nation of the nations of the earth, yet at the end of the age they would still be in existence. The continuity of the Jewish people. That in itself is remarkable. The survival of the Jewish people is a divine miracle. Nothing less than a divine miracle. When you think of the hatred, when you think of the persecution, when you think of the continual movements of the Jewish people from place to place, from city to city, when you remember that over the, the larger part of Europe, no Jew was allowed to own land. No Jew was allowed to own his property. No Jew was allowed to till anything, till ground. 
He wasn't allowed to pick apples. He was forced into only one thing, money. Never forget that when people uh, speak of Jewish people having a kind of business acumen, it was the only thing they were permitted by law in country after country after country to do, and that was lend and borrow money. <coughs> At that, God gave them brilliance. So that country after country passed into, Ju into the orbit of Jewish influence. And that in turn became the cause for bitterness and antagonism toward them. I can give you example after example. Of course, Hitler's whole point with the Jewish people is exactly this, that they controlled half of Europe. But who, who put them into this position? Tragic as it may seem. Well, now, let's forget that for one more. Let's put it on one side and say this. The continuity of those people is miraculous. And at the end of the age, the fig tree is still there, and it's there as a symbol. It's there as a sign. Something's going to happen to that fig tree, judged, withered from the roots, because it was fruitless, it was barren. At the end of the age, it will be there, still. The continuity of the Jewish people. The reconstitution of the Jewish nation much more than just the continuity of a people all over the earth. It speaks of the reconstitution of the Jewish nation as a nation amongst nations, a sovereign nation. That is a much greater miracle than their survival. That after 1,900 years of pogroms, liquidation screams, the 1939 to 1945 Holocaust in which 6 million Jews died like animals, in gas chambers, liquidated in the most, with the most modern scientific methods. It is a most amazing fact that after 1,900 years of exiled misery, they are brought back together again as a nation amongst nations. Now, the fig tree, cursed and withered, was the nation finished, ended, and the people destroyed. The end of national sovereignty, the end of nationhood, the end of national territory. After 1,900 years drawn together by some irresistible and sovereign power, they are reconstituted a nation. The fig tree is not merely there, it's putting forth its leaf. It breaks into leaf again after 1,900 years. Just as it withered the end of the nation, now it's reconstituted as a nation. The reconstitution of the Jewish people as the Jewish nation in 1948 is the supreme modern miracle. There's no doubt about that. We, we won't stay on that. I have no doubt about it at all in my own estimation. When you, when you realize some of the kind of things that the people went back to Israel on, uh, you begin to realize that it was a sovereign and irresistible power. Some of those boats were so rotten that one storm and they would have gone down. 
They had hundreds and hundreds of people on them so that they were like, the, the decks were black with people. And then they had the whole might of Britain against them. Stopping them from landing, hounding them back, turning and turning them in, in internment camps in Cyprus. But God won that battle. It was the irresistible and sovereign power of God that no nation or empire could stand. It broke itself on it. And God reconstituted the nation. And then we spoke about Fruit, the promise of fruit at the last, that is the greatest miracle. It's yet to come, in my estimation. Uh, not everyone will agree with me here. But in my estimation, the most wonderful thing about the fig tree is surely that if the fig tree, the, the earlier incident of the fig tree, if it was judged, cursed, and withered because there was no fruit, then surely this reference to the fig tree breaking into leaf, bursting into, the gre into greenery again, is some gracious promise of fruit at the last. In other words, far more wonderful uh, than the survival of the Jewish people, far more miraculous than the reconstitution of the Jewish nation, will be the fact that at the end, there will be a tremendous ingathering of Jewish people to Christ, which will quite overwhelm the Gentile, those with Gentile background. And there will, at the end, be fruit at last. That's what we have understood as the lesson of the fig tree. Now, I want to take up more where, where I left off last week. I, I ended talking about that most controversial of all subjects, predestination. Because I am well aware that in touching the matter that we have been touching, we are touching something that reaches from eternity to eternity. And that the whole of time, in the end, is going to be explained by what God ha has done. This is not just a matter of some uh, particular people. It's not just a, a matter of um, uh, sort of dispensational activity. This, in fact, explains the whole of human history. God has been at work. We are face to face with nothing less than the mystery of divine election. Now, who can understand divine election? Can anyone understand what the, the mystery of divine election, the predestinating power and will of God, the invincible power and will of God? We all have problems about it. The more democratic we are, the more intelligent we are, the more thinking we are, then the more problem we're going to have about this whole matter of what we call predestination. Because it's our finite minds trying to understand the infinite. It is beyond human comprehension to unravel or to understand. But this we do know. 
that in this matter of the fig tree and what it represents, we are touching the mystery of divine election. You have only, of course, to come to those wonderful chapters, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, to understand that. For many years, Ellison, Dr. Ellison was right, absolutely right, when he said that Romans 9, 10, and 11 of the epistle to the Romans was the Cinderella of the whole letter. Book after book has been written on Romans. Commentary after commentary. They all pass over 9, 10, and 11. They speak of it as a parenthesis, if you please. A parenthesis. And some of them refer to it as a Jewish parenthesis. Due to the fact that the Apostle Paul was himself Jewish. And had this ingrained, inherent patriotism in him. That's the explanation. Others say that it is just a matter of predestination. That's all. Nothing to do with the Jewish people at all. Just a matter of predestination. It's just a little picture. A little thing. And you get again and again in some of the commentaries when you come to chapter 12. Now the apostle goes back to chapter 8. That glorious doxology. And on we go. It's nonsense. The fact of the matter is that Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11 are the explanation of Romans 1 to 8 and Romans 12 to 16. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to put over. He stops at Romans 8 in his great onward march of God's saving and redeeming purpose. And he says, now I want you all to understand that behind it all there is a divine mystery. Something that is beyond us all. And it goes right back to the beginning of human history and goes right on to the end. And the Jewish people are an integral part. Of this purpose of God. So we understand. That. The Jewish. People. The Jewish nation. Had to fail. That presents us with problems. But they had to fail. There could be no fullness of the Gentiles. There could be no ingathering of the people of God from, from every tongue and kindred and tribe. Whilst Jewish nationhood was in existence. The nation had to finish. It had, its back had to be broken. It had to be paralyzed for 2,000 years. It had to be scattered to the ends of the earth. So that God's mighty power might be liberated to the ends of the earth to bring in the fullness of the Gentile. We forget that it was at the price of the 
breaking and finishing of Jewish nationhood that we are here tonight. That's the mystery. Now, if you will go home and sit down and read in a modern version, Romans 9, 10 and 11, you'll see exactly what I'm saying is true. The Apostle Paul argues, he says, there was an, a, a remnant left in Israel. The rest God hardened. The election obtained the salvation of God, the rest God hardened. And they shall remain like that, he says. Until something happens. And then at the end of his great argument, in Romans 11, he says, um, then the hardening that hath befallen Israel in part shall be removed. This mystery is great. So shall all Israel be saved. And the underlying argument of those wonderful verses is that if the throwing away of the Jewish people meant the reconciliation of the Gentiles. What will their receiving again be but divine resurrection? A mighty outburst such as the world has never seen in its long and unhappy history of divine and powerful resurrection that will simply burst up into the open. If the falling away of the Jewish people meant the salvation of the Gentiles, what will their being brought back again be but fullness? This is the Apostle Paul's whole argument in this matter. And I'm sure that we've got it all in those words, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Learn its lesson. Oh, there are too few people who think they've got the lesson of the fig tree all wrapped up in two sentences. They think they've just got it at their fingertips. Spring pointing to summer. Our very ignorance, the knowledge of our ignorance, should silence us before God. And that is the, the Apostle Paul's argument. Be still, be quiet before God. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you've been brought into something, the roots of which go deep into the Old Testament. These branches that have been gathered from all over the nations don't carry the trunk and the roots. It's the roots that carry these branches. And the roots go right back to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Samuel, to David. So, says the apostle, if you're in the tree, don't glory. 
that you're carrying great glory in this, that all that has carried you and is carrying you. Father Abraham, Father of all who believe, carrying us all. That's what we should glory in, that we've become part, an integral part, as much a part as any of those under the old or any of these Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians of, of the beginning. We have become an integral part of God's great eternal purpose which goes right back before time began. We've become part of it. And we've become <clears throat> fellow citizens with the saints. With the saints. Fellow heirs. Fellow partakers. How wonderful that is. Oh, um, it's so exciting. So, so utterly thrilling. It's the mystery of election. How can you explain such a thing? How can you comprehend such a thing? That God, in order to save us, brought to an end the Jewish nation. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. That doesn't mean all Gentiles, but it means the full number of the elect amongst the Gentiles have been brought in. Then there will be no more need for the dispersion of the Jewish people. No more need for the finish of their national sovereignty. So says the word of God. When that happens, the hardening will be removed. We've, but we're in the, surely, uh, you won't find this in the notes, but surely we're in the first stages of that. <laughs> surely we're in the first stages of that. We've seen the survival of the Jewish people. We've seen the reconstitution of the Jewish nation. Now are we, by the grace of God, going to live to see fruit at the last? Now that doesn't mean that they're going to bear fruit over there whilst we're here, but it means that they're coming into us is going to be such a mighty influx and it's going to mean just divine resurrection that there's going to be fruit in a new way. That doesn't mean, of course, that there's going to be worldwide revival, necessarily. But from heaven's point of view, something of the most tremendous Tremendous significance is going to take place. So significant that the devil can only gnash his teeth. He can do absolutely nothing other than gnash his teeth in fury, impotent fury, that God has finished the mystery. And that's why I sit in the midst of all those visions of dragons and serpents and beasts and ups and downs and darkness and light and I don't know what else. Suddenly you hear a strong angel uh, flies in the midst of heaven and he says something and John's got his pen ready and he's writing it all down and the voice says, tear that up. It's in Revelation 10. Don't you dare utter a word of that. That was the only thing. Everywhere else he was told, right, right, right. Nope. 
Don't you write a word of that. But then he saw heaven opened and heard the words, the mystery of God is finished. It's done. That means all this, the mystery of God is finished. I, last week, you know, when I do this thing, I try to do it a little better this week. See, I put an elect nation, that's from 1 Peter, chapter 2, a people for his possession, peculiar people in the authorised version, but it means a people for his possession, not peculiar, uh, in that way. Um, the body of Christ, the city of God, the wife of the Lamb, it's all the same thing. The olive tree. Again with Abraham and went right through to the Messiah. Peter, John, James, Paul, all Jewish. You've only got one Gentile writer in the whole New Testament, Dr. Luke. The only Gentile writer we have in the whole of the New Testament. Actually, strangely enough, the Old Testament has more Gentile writers. Job was a Gentile. But more in the, in the Old Testament. Then the fullness of the Gentiles. And then finally... The great Jewish in gathering, the mystery of God completed. And so I put here, all Israel saved the mystery of God. You ask me to explain the mystery of election. How can I explain such a thing? Can anyone? The only way I can explain it, the only way that I am satisfied, is to say that it is the tenacity of divine love and grace. It's summed up in those words, Jacob, I have loved, which lie at the heart of the chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. How can you explain God's love for Jacob? People tried to say, well, he saw what Jacob would become <laughs> at the end. We could argue the same, perhaps, for Esau. I don't know. Ah, it's a mystery to me. I only, can you explain love? Can you analyze love? Can you say that love will do so and so and so and so? You can't. Love is love. And so you're up against not some great eternal divine machinery, but you are in the presence of infinite and universal love. From that, you can not get away. There is therefore in the whole of the Bible perhaps no greater, more radiant outshining of the grace and love and mercy of God than here. That finally, at the end, having brought in the fullness of the Gentiles, all Israel shall be saved. Don't forget those strange and inexplicable words. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake. Think about that. Go home and think about it. Sit down and think about it. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake. 
as touching the election. They are beloved of God for the Father's sake. And then listen, straight on, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What a God! What a God! Francis Thompson once wrote a great poem that I've no doubt most of you heard. If you don't know it, you know the title, The Hound of Heaven. That's it in a word. When God sets his love on someone, when God sets his love on a people, he'll win. It is, of course, our one great bedrock certainty that if we're loved of God, he will finally do it in us. And we are loved of God. So the whole of the New Testament rings with this kind of certainty. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus. Faithful is he that has called you, who will also do it. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. And so on, and so on. And even to that awful, ghastly, lukewarm mess that the, Laod the church at Laodicea represents and was and represents. Do you know how the Lord revealed himself to them? Thus saith the Amen. In other words, he said, I'm the last word. Even in this situation, I'm still the last word. My purpose is going to be finished. Amen. Well, there we are. As I say, we could um, dwell on this, and we have dwelt on it. We've tried to say something last week and came to an end, and we've said a bit more this week, and more or less... Again, we are touching something that the Apostle Paul spoke of as the mystery of Christ and asked for prayer that he mm, might have an open door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. And that's what this is. Well, now then, let's take our Bible. And let's just look at these last verses, shall we? Did you realize that behind that little phrase from the fig tree, learn its lesson, all that? It was all that? It's quite amazing, really, isn't it? Some would say, well, I think he's read a lot into it. But if you know your Bible, how else can you explain these things? How else do you explain Romans 9, 10, and 11? <laughs> Now let's look at verse 29. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. What are these things? When you see these things taking place, the lesson of the fig tree, that's one, and the sign of verses 14 to 23, the abomination of desolation. When you see those things 
taking place, know that he is near at the very gates. Now, of course, in those days, the gates were the uh, courtyard gates, which were always locked. The courtyard was there and the house was here. So it means he's only got to come from the gates through the courtyard. Still got just a little way to go, but he's, he's almost there. He's at the very gates. Verse 30. We mentioned this last week, you will remember, in the matter of the continuity of the Jewish people. This generation shall not pass away. This verse is generally considered to be one of the first class difficulties of the New Testament. Because um, modernists, liberal theologians, love to point out that the plain meaning is that that generation would not pass away till all these things, till these things had come to pass. And they say that generation did pass away. Uh, so how do you explain that? A biblical generation is about 40 years. You will remember that last week we said that this is uh, a word, it is a rather difficult word, a word of generalized, rather indefinite meaning. It could mean the generation which heard Christ predict these things would not pass away till they saw the destruction of the temple and the city. This actually happened in 70 AD. This was 30. So one generation, and that actual generation, saw the destruction of the temple and the city. It can mean that. Or it can mean the generation which sees the fig tree and the abomination of desolation is the generation which will see the coming of the Son of Man. Or thirdly, it can mean this race will not pass away. Sometimes, not so often, this word has been used with the meaning of race. And in that connection, it would then refer to the Jewish people. So it would read, this race will not pass away, meaning the Jewish people will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. No, all. All these things take place or fulfilled. It seems to me that the difficulty is explained by divine inspiration. That the Lord Jesus probably used this rather ambiguous word or used this word deliberately with this ambiguous meaning so that it can mean, one, the generation concerning the temple and city that hear what I've said and see these things taking place will not pass away till they see all these things take place in the temple and city destroyed. Right, it happened. Secondly, it can mean that the generation which sees the fig tree and the sign of the end will not pass away till the coming of the Son of Man. Or thirdly, 
this race, the Jewish people, will survive to the close of the age. It probably includes all three of those um, meanings. Then will you also note verse 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. I'm sorry, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. What wonderful, what a wonderful statement. How simple. How utterly simple. How pithy. What a universe is summed up there. Heaven and earth will pass away. Think of that. Heaven and earth will, will pass away. My words will not pass away. That means when there are no more mountains as we know them, when there's no more sea as we know it, when there's no more England as we know it, when there's no more world as we know it, when there's no more space as we know it, his words will still be there, as creative, as powerful, as intensely practical as they ever were. Remember, in this connection, some people might say, well, I don't understand that. We won't need the Bible in heaven, will we? I mean, in the eternal kingdom, well, we need the Bible. With all those things about, sort of, what to do with sin. And... But uh, you make a great mistake if you only think that the Bible's to do with sin. Remember that the word of God is truth. Is reality. It is the expression in human language of eternal and indestructible facts. Take this. I am. That's my name. You'll never get beyond that. Jacob I have loved. Why? The whole of eternity. That great declaration of the heart of God will outring Never get beyond that. God is love. Never get beyond that. You have here eternal and indestructible facts expressed in human language. It will never pass away. Never, never, never. And even the fact that God has himself become flesh and died in our place for sin that we might be saved in itself is an indestructible and eternal fact. For in heaven, in the throne, there is a lamb as it had been slain to remind us forever. Pierced hands, pierced feet, a pierced side to remind us forever of the eternal and indestructible fact of Calvary. Calvary is an event in time, but it is an expression of an eternal principle. Calvary is what God is like. 
Don't forget that. It's not that God suddenly sat down one day and said, there's only one way we can do this. Our son will have to go and die. Grim, nevertheless, that's it. No, no, no. God would do it again. Do you know that? If there was, a, if there was a, another need, and there won't be. But if there was another need, God would do it all over again. He can't help it. I said that right from the It's his nature. It's his nature. God is love, and he has to give himself. He doesn't think in one sense about it. He just says, I'll lay down my life. Right. They've gone off the rails. Right. And I'll lay down my life. Put aside my glory. To win them. To love them. Get them back. Not just for my satisfaction, but for theirs as well. You see, the word of God is the expression of eternal and indestructible fact. It is no vain thing to trust the word of God. Now every time the devil comes to you and says, don't be stupid. Use your common sense. Not so common actually, as is generally supposed. But the devil often comes with that, use your common sense. What he means is, use your unbelief. For common sense, real common sense, always sides with God. It's the common sense thing to do, isn't it? I can't understand people. Perhaps it's the Jacob in me, I don't know. I can't understand people not siding with God. It's the common sense thing to do. If God is all power and all life and invincible, then obviously the common sense thing is to side with him, isn't it? Maybe that's why he loved Jacob, I don't know. The fact of the matter is this, it's no vain thing to trust the Lord. If you really believe that his word is the expression of indestructible and eternal fact, then you trust him. It's the simplest thing to do. Don't trust yourself. My word, you haven't gone far if you're trusting yourself. We all lean to our own understanding, but we haven't gone very far, you know, in the Christian life. Oh, what a mess we make of everything. Our clammy hands, why they would take hold of the joy of heaven and make it a miserable hell. They would. Just let us get our hands onto heaven. And it would be just hell itself within a matter of a week. Why? Because of the kind of people we are. Don't lean to your own understanding in things. Use your common sense and side with God. Common sense will always tell you. Real common sense will always tell you. Believe God. Isn't that so? Common sense ought to tell you. Is he a liar? Is he capable of lying? Does he lead you up the garden path? Doesn't common sense tell you that? It's unbelief that we call common sense, which says, now then, if you do so and so, so you're going to be, you're going to be a nun for the rest of your life. If you do so and so and so and so, you're going to be one of those miserable things with those downturn sort of thing, lips, you know, corners of the mouth, and you'll just sit there dressed in grey or black and when you have a sort of outburst brown <laughs> but you know the kind of thing the devil comes to us again and again you do the will of God and you'll regret it 
I tell you, he says, I tell you, it, there's nothing like this Christian life of misery. You'll suffer and you'll suffer and you'll suffer and you'll suffer. And oh, we listen to it all and we say, yes, that's quite right, quite right, quite right. And we've got a whole book to tell us that everyone who's ever trusted himself or trusted the devil has ended in misery and joylessness and emptiness. And we've got the whole book to tell us that anyone who ever trusted God, laughter was in their mouth and joy was in their heart. Why, we even know of people who when they died at the stake said that they'd never had a more heavenly moment. Do you remember some of those old saints? Remember old Ridley and Latimer when they were dying? And Ridley, for one single moment, crumpled a bit. And Latimer turned round to him with a laugh and said, Play the man, Ridley. We'll set on fire a torch in this country that by the grace of God will never be put out. And until just recently, it never has been. And we must trust the Lord that it never will be. Whilst we're here. Not just here in Halford, but I mean, whilst we Christians are here in the country, we'll not let that light go out by the grace of God. No, 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 don't listen to the devil's lies. The word of God is the expression in human language of eternal and indestructible fact. Not ideals, not theories, not sort of things that might be rather good one day in the millennium. But things that are workable and practical. And if only we will trust God with all our heart, the Holy Spirit will work them out in our lives. And we'll know, well, haven't you had that experience? You've gone into something, you say, I've had peace which passes all understanding. I can't understand it, you say. Well, of course you can't understand it. Your common sense should tell you. You've sided with God. So, of course, you've got peace which passes all understanding. If you side with God, you should be the most miserable person in the world. But instead, I've known people give up everything in, in, in a big sacrifice. And there they are, like some child without any worries or without any responsibility, full of joy. How do you explain that? Common sense ought to tell you. They've sided with God. There's joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace in believing. Misery and unrest in unbelief. The God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Well, there we are. It's no small thing to trust in his word and to do it. One day when we're in heaven, everyone who's got any position at all in heaven, you will find it because they trusted in the word of the Lord and did it. And the Lord will say to some who perhaps only washed floors or were home helps, you trusted in me and my word and you did it. Your name 
will be known throughout heaven. It's not a question of platform ministry. He'll probably say, that's all finished with, that platform business. And all those people standing up there, holding port, that's over and done with. Now it's the real value. People who were not known, people who took back seats, people who were pushed around, people who were the last, who have become the first. Because they trusted in the word of the Lord and did it. Abraham, why Abraham, if he's listening in on this time, will absolutely say amen. We could only hear him. Um, uh, how did he become Abraham? His name was Abraham. How did he become Abraham, father of a multitude? How? Because he, he, he trusted in the word of the Lord and did it. He went out, not knowing whither he went. And Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. How did Moses leave all the glory and power and riches of Egypt? But it was the word of the Lord. He saw that it was the expression of eternal and indestructible fact. And he knew that when old Pharaoh was mouldering in some wrapped up mummy case, <laughs> Moses would be in glory. As alive as the day when he first saw that God's word was indestructible and eternal. And so with all of them, every one of them, they trusted in the word of the Lord and did it. And because of that, they became what they are. Not what they were, but what they are. They're in the city. They're in this mystery of God. Because they believed in the word of God and did it. Well, never forget that. It's no vain thing, it's no small thing to trust in the Lord. Maybe you've only got a kitchen sink as your sphere of divine service. But you remember this, that if you trust in the Lord and do it, it's remembered in heaven and noted. And every bit of spiritual value that comes into your life is spiritual value and material for the city of God. It's part of the finishing of the mystery of God. It's as important to God as what he did with Abraham. And Sarah, if she's listening, will say amen to that. Maybe in the background. It's all part and parcel of what God is doing. Moreover, what the Lord Jesus has said in particular concerning his coming again will come to pass exactly as he said. That's why we need seriously to take heed of these things. It's not just in general that the word of God is the expression of eternal and indestructible facts and human language. It is also that here we've got something which is absolutely vital. What he has actually said about his coming again, we must take note of. It is to be seriously and solemnly heeded. Woe betide any child of God who thinks that they know it all. Huh. And that brings us to this final warning and exhortation in these last verses, this final parable. It really goes over the whole of the discourse from verses 32 to 37. 
These last verses of the discourse contain the vitally important final warning and exhortation of Christ in the light of all that he said in this discourse. He's not predicted these things so that we might be entertained or fascinated with ideas about the future, but with no relevance to the present. He's not given us some system of prophecy, prophetic interpretation, to fiddle with, play with, and fit in like a jigsaw puzzle, as if God is interested in divine crossword puzzles. That's some people's idea of prophecy. Try and fit it all in like other people do crossword puzzles. God hasn't given us that to play with us. Every single part of what he has said has an intensely practical application. Intensely practical application. Some of it will not have the intensely practical application till we're in the actual time. And then when we're actually there, it'll be so intensely practical. May God bring it to our memory. Firstly, he warns us, verses 32 and 33. 32 and 33. But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. No one, not the angels, nor even the Lord Jesus, can fix the date or the hour. So we must be very careful of all extreme interpretations that fix dates and hours. Well, I hope that doesn't have to be said in this place. But if anyone ever tells you that on such and such a date, the Lord Jesus is um, uh, coming back, blow your nose and look the other way. <laughs> Take absolutely no notice at all of any people who fix dates or hours or weeks because it is entirely anti-scriptural. And I don't care whether a person stands up with a prophecy with a thus saith the Lord, or its tongues and interpretation, or anything else. However, the word of knowledge, revelation, or anything, it is anti-scriptural and therefore can be dismissed. Remember, this is intensely practical. That's why God has given us this. We mustn't be misled. When the Lord solemnly warns us that the time is coming, the time is near, then take heed. But no one knows the day or the hour. We do not know, it's not in the day and hour, but it's interesting that the Lord uses the word, you do not know when the time will come. In other words, we shall know the approximate period, but we shall not know the actual time. And indeed, the Lord once said in one particular place, not here, in an hour when ye think not, then the Son of Man cometh. I've often thought about that. When ye, the disciples, in an hour when ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Then Christ told them a parable, the lesson of which is quite simple, that no one, neither the servants nor the doorkeeper, knew when the master of the house was returning. Verses 34, 35, and 36. If they had known what time the master was coming back, they could have had a little party. And that's the point of it. In fact, in Matthew, that's exactly what the Lord says. They would get drunk, beat one another up, have a sort of party, a beano. 
Because they knew the Lord, the Master, was coming back at two o'clock, so they said, right. Down all tools, everyone. While the cat is away, the mice to play, we'll have a party. We'll indulge, we'll slacken, we'll enjoy ourselves, we'll satisfy ourselves. We're always hard at work for this grim master. So now we'll have a little bit of fun and game. Uh, the lesson of this parable is because they didn't know what time he was returning, they were all kept on their toes. They didn't know. They didn't know whether he would return in the evening, whether he'd return at midnight, or in the early hours of the morning, or in the morning. They could only keep awake, get on with their job, and watch. Now, don't be afraid. There are some Christians who, of course, then feel that they've got to get into a kind of spiritual neurosis and be all the time on the go. Remember, there is a period of sleep. And the master's not going to be angry if he came back, except for the doorkeeper, and found the servants tucked up in bed. It was between midnight and cockcrow. He expected them to be having sleep. Do you see what I mean? Not the doorkeeper. The old watchman, he had to be alive and alert all the time. And that's the point. Keep awake, get on with the job, and watch. So there is a threefold warning and exhortation. Verse 33, take heed. Take heed. Do not be dull. Don't be indifferent. Do not be slow to respond. Take in what he has said and be diligent and careful. Do not just drift. Don't let yourself be carried by the momentum of the church, or of others, merely, without your own original life and way with God. If you do not understand, pray for understanding. Don't go round in circles, champing at the bit. Pray for understanding. I didn't understand that. It was completely above me. Pray for understanding. If you don't understand about the coming of the Lord, pray for understanding. Remember, you have no excuse at all for not recognizing the sign of the time. The second thing is watch. Verse 33, take heed, watch. Verse 35, watch, therefore. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, watch. The absolute need of watchfulness. Keep awake, keep alert, keep attentive. Now, only divine and resurrection life through the Holy Spirit will keep us alive and awake and watchful. It is interesting that in some of the ancient manuscripts, the word and pray has been added. And pray. Watch and pray. In other words, this is part of watching. It's quite right that really, in one way, they put that in as a kind of commentary on it. Watch and pray. See, understanding. If only you'll keep watching and praying, you'll get understanding. You don't think the Lord wants to catch you out, do you? When I was younger than the Lord, I got this idea that the Lord really wanted to catch us out and that he would deliberately come to time to see how many of us he could catch out. 
having said all this, and I'm sure this underlies a lot of our thinking subconsciously. Oh, you know, he's really on them. He's going to try and catch us out. We've got, he doesn't want that at all. Believe me, the law will do everything in his power possible so that you're alive and awake for his coming. You don't know what it means to the Lord to be greeted. I mean, it'll be up there. But all the greetings, the rapturous greetings, as one of our hymns put, uh, when, when the Lord says, Hello, you are watching. I'm here, back, face to face. Marvellous. Word for every one of us, you know. There have been thousands upon thousands up there, 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands upon thousands. But, but he'll have a word for us all. Hello, everyone. The word peace, by the way, in the New Testament, I'm not being irreverent. The word peace is just hello, shalom, hello. Hello, everyone. So glad you were waiting for me. And then we shall come back together. Well, lastly, do the work given you to do, verse 34. Verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his own, his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Everyone's been apportioned some work to do. Get on with it, fulfilling your task with all conscientiousness and devotion, whilst at the same time watching. Now, don't worry about whether it should be a great big job and a great big ministry or not. Get on with the job that's being given you to do. Maybe it's just at the office, maybe it's in the home. Get on with that, do it before the Lord, do it as unto the Lord. And where you've got some help, you can, where you can be some help in the church, be a help in the church and do the job conscientiously. Remember, it's not just the chief steward who sort of pulls you up and says you were impunctual or you were slovenly on this or you didn't do that or the person in charge of cleaning or whatever it is or me or one or the other. It's the Lord. Some people think that everything here is just sort of under human management. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe the Lord will say, you know, you didn't do the right thing by so-and-so one day. But you, all of us, the Lord will say, I watched you. I watched you. You didn't do that job as unto me. You just kicked over the traces and did it in the most slovenly way possible. I mean, you see, we, and you know, the point is, whatever little job you've got to do, do you know, you may be terribly surprised one day, the Lord say, you know that little job you had? I watched you. I watched the way you prayed about it. I watched the way you did it conscientiously. You had many a bad time about that, didn't you? You thought there was no, no real significance in it at all. You used to think, why doesn't the Lord give me a big ministry or something like that? Something really valuable. Well, now look here. I want you to be in charge of the whole of China. Yes, that's exactly what the scripture says. To be faithful over little, to be faithful over much, and the Lord's exactly what the Lord would say. I've watched it. See, it'll all be different there. I'll say, I've watched all that. That's just the character I was looking for. Now I want you to take responsibility in, in, in the divine and eternal administration. Well, there we are. Isn't it instructive to note 
that it was precisely two days before the Lord Jesus died that he gave this discourse. Do you ever realize that? When you come to chapter 14, verse 1, it says there were two days to the feast of the Passover. He died on Passover. Two days before. Isn't that profoundly instructive? Two days before he died, at the very threshold, on the very threshold of his passion, of his anguish, of his agony, he spoke not even of his resurrection, not even of his ascension, but of his final coming as the servant of the Lord, fully vindicated, triumphant in glory. Isn't that rather wonderful? How like the Lord it is that before he faces the worst part of his whole existence, he looks right off to the end and says to them, now you're going to be disillusioned, you're all going to fail. He knew that. He didn't say it here, but he knew it. But you will one day remember this, what I said two days before I died. I spoke of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Well, I think that's rather wonderful. Although thousands of years were to lie between the two events, of his death and his coming again. He declares that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. To put it in three words, quite simple, but universal in their significance, eternal in their significance, God has won. And he said it before Calvary. And before the 2,000 years that we're all in still, before the breakup of the Jewish nation and their dispersal, the loss of national territory, all the suffering of the true church of God, sometimes the seeming victory of Satan and the forces of darkness, before ever all that had come to pass, he said, really virtually, God has won. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, or in cloud, with great power and glory. Shall we pray? Oh, beloved Lord, we pray together that thou wilt burn thy word into every one of our hearts. We need, Lord, that we shall wake up, take heed, be alive, be watchful, be getting on with the job thou hast given us to do, Lord. Oh, we do together commit ourselves to thee. Father, we can become so familiar with thy word, so familiar with these thoughts, even familiar with the idea, the knowledge of thy coming again that somehow, Lord, we can be dulled into a kind of, lulled into a kind of senseless, insensible stupor and sleep. Wake us up, Lord, by thy Spirit, we pray, so that we are those 
in whom the blessed hope of thy coming is doing a purifying work. What we haven't understood this evening, reveal it to us, Lord, we pray. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.